Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, joined by Ian Clary. We're in Book 10 of the Confessions, and uh, we may finish today. We, we've we basically got through the book, or at least we'll one see. of us has. And uh, <laughs> Ian is going to open us up with a passage on uh, what's in Book 10. What chapter in Book 10 is it? So Book 10, 36, 59 uh, is what we're looking at. So in the Loeb version, it's on page 169. Okay. Um, so oh, it's the, the yeah, we're talking about pride. Uh, I mean, there's so much philosophy that's going on in here, um, but I thought, at least for our readers that might not uh, get as geeked out as we do over the philosophical stuff, I thought, oh, this would be a really, this is just, it's human nature right here when he's talking about pride, something that we all struggle with. Um, so we can riff off of this. <clears throat> so I'll read uh, from 59, uh, just that opening paragraph. Uh, Lord, you alone have dominion free from pride, for you are the only true Lord, and no one is Lord over you. Can it be that the third kind of temptation has left me, or can leave me in the whole of this earthly life, namely the desire to be revered and loved by other people, not for the sake of something else, but only as a means to the kind of joy which is not joy at all? What a pitiful life is this, and what a vile form of boasting. It is this, perhaps more than anything else, that makes people fail to love you or revere you with integrity. And so you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Then you thunder over the world's ambitions and the foundations of the mountains shake. The one who is hostile to our true bliss threatens those of us who must of necessity be loved and revered by other people on account of the particular roles we play in human society. All around us, he scatters plaudits, well done, well done, as traps. So when we gather them together, uh, we are caught unawares. We set our joy apart from your truth and put it in human deceits instead. Then we enjoy being loved and revered, not because of you, but instead of you. In this way, the enemy has us in his grasp and has made us like him, and not for a union of love, but for a partnership and punishment. He decided to set his throne in the north to make people serve him in the chill of darkness mm -hmm. as he imitates you with this corrupted and distorted approach. Um, such a, I mean, such an insightful uh paragraph there where he's talking he's talking about ambitions right that are really stoked by pride uh, something that we've seen in the rest of the book right where he's struggling through his own ambitions and he realizes that all of these things are entirely self-serving um and what he does is he helpfully frames it such that like it's not wrong to want to pursue good things uh or to have a kind of ambition that's godly um but he says there um after noting these traps, uh, he says that we set our joy apart from your truth, but in human deceits instead. Then we enjoy being loved and revered, not because of you, but instead of you. And so it gets back to like the, these questions people will talk about with Augustine and kind of like rightly ordering, um, you know, the things of this, the goods of this world or rightly ordering the soul. So we can we can we can have ambitions. We can love things and people can love us but it's only genuine and true if it's in God, if it's outside of God, then it's, it's evil. And it's actually, you're in the grip of Satan when you're doing it. It's funny you say that. So I was reading um, one of his, uh, I guess it's a homily on first John recently. Mm -hmm. And he has this whole thing about how real love is only true love and true love is only God. So when you love, you're loving out of God. There's this yeah. idea of genuine love or genuine truth, anything in the, in the, in the copy and really, once you're in God, that's that's the real thing. Okay, so this chapter, that's, that's helpful. This chapter, though, like to help someone read this, I think we need to like generalize enough because Augustine is citing all sorts of things about faculty psychology, 
which is a fancy term to talk about how we have a mind and a will and memory, all this kind of stuff. And also senses, like the five senses, like seeing and touching and so on. And what he's, I think, trying to do in, in my reading of him is answer this basic question. Okay, so I came to know who God was through my study of the Bible, through my study of philosophy, through listening to guys like Ambrose. And God is immense, unchangeable, above all understanding. So how do I, like, how do I actually get to know him? Like, you don't yeah. see him. I don't touch him. And his answer seems to be, I, I, I somehow I had to go beyond what it is to be human. And yet I didn't really have to go that far because God was always there. So there's a, there's a paragraph I want to read that I think, or a few sentences that really, I think, sum this up. So page 179 in our edition, okay, which is book 10, chapter 40, section 65. And there he says, is there any place, O truth, where you have not walked beside me, teaching me to eschew and what to pursue? When I used to refer to you such meager insights as I was capable of, and when I used to ask your guidance. I traversed the external world, making what use I could of my senses, such as sight and all that kind of stuff. And I looked closely at the life that my body gets from me and my own senses. So he thought about himself. Yeah. Then I penetrated the farthest reaches of my memory. That's what this book's about, primarily book 10. Yeah. Those various dimensions, miraculously full of riches beyond counting. Earlier, he talks about the memory as being like this, um, this, com this complex infinitude. It's not simple, but it's complex infinitude. Okay. Meaning you can pull all these things together. Then he says, then I examined them closely and I was dismayed. And I could distinguish nothing of them without you. And I found that none of them was you. So God was no object in his experience, no object in his memory. And yet God was always there. That's a good summary because he, this is the realization he gets to a little bit earlier in the book. Um, on page, just give me one moment to find it for you. Uh, it is on, well, basically on page 133 okay. or on chapter 25, section 36. So he's going through this whole, um, the, the previous paragraph is a big search. He's looking for you. Uh, he was searching for God, but couldn't basically find him outside of his memory. But then how is he in the memory, etc.? And then he says in chapter 25, section 36, where do you abide in my memory, Lord? Where in that place do you abide? What kind of resting place have you fashioned for yourself? What kind of sanctuary have you built for yourself? You've done my memory the honor of abiding in it. Mm. Interesting point. So God's the actor. You have done my memory the honor of abiding in it, but I am now going to examine your precise location there. When I thought of you, I went beyond the regions of my memory that animals also possess, because I did not find you there among the impressions of physical realities. And I came to the regions of memory where I stored my emotions and did not find you there either. Then I reached the place where my mind itself resides, the place that it possesses in my memory. You think he's going to say that's where you found God, but he doesn't. He continues, for my mind is mindful of itself, but you were not there either. This was because in the same way as you are not a physical impression, nor a living person's emotion, such as exists when we enjoy something, grieve, desire, fear, remember, forget, and other such experiences, so too you yourself are not the mind, because you are God and Lord over the mind. And all these things undergo change 
but you remain unchangeable over all things, and you have deigned to dwell in my memory from the time I came to learn of you. And then he goes on, if you go down to the next section, so uh, chapter 26, section 37, just skipping about a sentence or two down. So where did I find you so that I could begin to learn of you? You were not in my memory already because before I learned of you. Where then did I find you in order to learn of you? If not in you yourself, far beyond myself. Nowhere was there any place. I went back and forth, but nowhere was there any place. Well, truth, everywhere you rule over all who ask your guidance, and you answer them all at the same time, even when what they ask is about you is different. You reply clearly, but not everyone hears you clearly. Everyone has something they want to ask you about, but they have not always. They don't always hear what you want to. Your ideal servants are those who no longer look to, to hear from you the answer that they want, but instead what they want to hear from you. In short, he doesn't have the clearest conception, but he knows that somehow God made himself present to him. Not in any created thing, not in any sensory thing, not in his affections. So if you if you walk into a building and you feel there's a presence of God here, maybe. Augustine's like not sure that's quite right. I mean, maybe there's some truth to that idea of that you can, uh, you just have a, a heightened sense in that moment. But but God is something beyond all things. And he's going to make that really clear in chapter 27 and section 38. Where he says, late have I loved you, O beauty, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And look, you were within me and I was outside myself. It's crazy to say. Yeah. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. Created order. You were with me, but I was not with you. Those crazy things kept me far from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. we got to get to Acts 17 after this because of what he just said. <laughs> now listen, he goes to the five senses now. You called and shouted and broke through my deafness, so hearing. You flamed and shone and banished my blindness, so seeing. You breathed your fragrance on me, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you, smell. I've tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for more. You have touched me, and I have burned for your peace. In short, somehow we're always in God. Somehow God's always abiding in our memory. But we're so distracted by that which is in the created order that we exchange the glory of God for corruptible things, for four-footed animals, for the sun and moon, for our own emotions, our, our own feeling of love, for example. Just like the, the pride passage you read. Remember Satan, they're the enemy? Yep. He tempts us to, lo to love ambition and encourages us. We, we're loving those things, but it's... It feels right, but in fact, it's a trap. It's the Admiral Akbar meme at that point. <laughs> the, um, the Admiral Akbar meme. Well, you know, in Star Wars, Admiral Akbar, uh, there, there's a, there's a trap. Like the Emperor sets it up. And it's a trap. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a nerd. Uh, okay. Well, I like Star Wars, but you know. Yeah, well, everyone else will understand it because we're cool. It's a cool <laughs> I, I want to read like one verse to you in Acts 17. Well, two verses, 27 and 28. Yeah. Uh, Paul talks about how God uh, basically determined the allotted places of all people. Verse 27, that they should seek God. Remember, Augustine's trying to do that. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So the idea of sensory perce uh, perception. So they're all looking, trying to touch him, find him, build altars. But they're not finding him, Paul, Paul implies. And then he yeah. says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What do you mean, Paul? He explains four. So four is an explanation word. It's gar in Greek. For in him, 
in God, we live and move and have our being. Whereas offspring, being God's offspring, then we should think of God not in the created uh, order, verse 29 says. We should think of him entirely differently. And he goes on to talk about the resurrection and so on. In the exact same way that Augustine finishes this chapter by talking about the economy of God and the incarnation of Christ, the God-man. So I think Paul is doing a very, he has, it's almost like Augustine's expanding on Paul's logic here in Acts 17. We can't pursue God through the created order as such. Those are signs, but they're not the thing itself. And yet at the same time, we're in him and we have our being in God. And I think Augustine figures that out somehow. To tr- He's outside himself and God's in him. So he has to get in himself to transcend himself. It's, it's a bit confusing, I know. Uh, I don't know if I ha- can exactly parse out Augustine's logic, but the very simple point is everything on earth is not God because it's creature. God is uncreated, so he's not an object in the created, ex- or created experience. And therefore, to find God is not so much about seeking, it's just turning to him because he's near to all of us. Mm. We are restless until we find our rest in God. Chapter That's the first paragraph. Right. And in this chapter, it's God's immutability that drives Augustine to find his ultimate rest in the immutable God who's everywhere present, which is omnipresence, another classical category of um, uh, of God. Yeah, which it has to show you why these classical categories of God are vitally important to our just spirituality. All right, yeah. that's my trying to no, simplify the chapter. I, I think you're. I think you're right. Um, you know, when you when you think about the 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 sensory. You know, you can see this movement in the confessions, right? As he's moving from the sensible world up to God, that he mm-hmm. comes to this 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 kind of knowledge of God in the garden um, when he's reading Romans thirteen and and whatnot. And this is almost like a philosophical commentary on kind of what happened to him, right? As he's moving away from the sensible world, shedding these things like pride and ambition, uh, now to have this true knowledge. That when you get to the end of book ten, he's going to explain actually comes through a mediator right and through repentance and then appropriate praise to god right so to actually kind of unlock you know you can see this progress right where he's working through memory he's kind of exploring his own memory realizing there's all kinds of like weird tensions between like knowing something and then forgetting it but knowing that you forgot it so how could you truly know it you know (laughs) or how can you know forgetfulness because if the moment you know the reality of it you you should forget it like right yeah exactly right so it's like this it's like this weird not even a paradox but like even a kind of contradiction uh and uh and he and like the language in uh i guess this would be 1726 in the second paragraph there uh, when he says, you know, uh, what am I to do? Oh, my true life, my God, I shall go beyond this power of mine that is called memory, right? So he's moving past the memory question because of these problems. And you can see that it's an upward movement. Uh, so I shall go beyond it so I can find my way to you, my sweetness and light. What are you saying to me? Look, I make my way upward uh, through my mind towards you and you remain high above me and I shall go beyond the power of mine that is called memory. And then a little later, he says, so I shall pass beyond even memory to reach them who set me apart from beasts, to reach him who has set me apart from the beasts and made me wiser than the birds of the air. I shall pass even beyond memory, but where may I find you, right? So then he gives this interesting term here. If I find you beyond my memory, I cannot remember you. How shall I find you if I have no recollection of you, which is a platonic term again, uh, in terms of memory. Um, so he's saying like animal, he, he's making differentiations between like 
uh, animal memory. Um, he's, I'm not like the beasts. Um, that I actually, uh, I have something higher uh, than what the yes. Yeah, so, so he has the whole thing about how both animals and he can use memory to right. know where something is, and, so and therefore that alone can't be the distinguishing mark of right someone who can know God for various reasons. Right, the type of soul that an animal has doesn't have those powers anyway, but also an animal doesn't have the moral dilemma that we all face, which is why he's going to then argue for the need for a mediator at the end of this, and it's going to be very explicit. It's, it's already getting there, right? When in, in 2435, uh, he's talking about truth, right? And the need to find truth. And then what you just read on 2637, he actually names truth, right? And so you can see that like, there's this progression that he's working from like mind to getting past it, <clears throat> or memory getting past it in his mind to moving up to something higher. That's now going to bring him beyond just like things that he can memorize, remember that are sort of there in his mind. But now he's actually coming into like this kind of pursuit and then finding of a truth maybe even a union with it but that that can't actually really happen until uh he he repents and and trusts in this mediator that he's going to talk about at the end it might given the time why don't you just go to page yeah, 185 and just read, yeah so just read like a sentence or two there from which, that which, sorry, the mediator really, at the end well page 185 is really clear like i'll just read the sentence i'm thinking of sure it was for the mediator between god and humanity to, best, to possess some of God's qualities and some of humanity's, to preclude, pre preclude his being on both sides like humanity and so far from God, or being on both sides like God and so far from humanity. For then he could not be a mediator. So the point is that he, unlike Satan, who tempts us to pride and so on, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, and can unite those two together. There's something yeah, in, in him a, in that a, is the mediation point. Right? Yeah, it's not a mediator it's like, like in a a cool word it's like how can i as a human know god yeah christ the mediator between humanity and divinity mediates that that connection yeah in the very last sentence can you read the very last sentence of book 10 super no, important i don't want to do it okay uh, page oh, my, I'm so sorry oh i got it i got it and those who seek the lord do praise him yeah that that comes back to book one because you gotta remember the seeking and finding rest for augustine this book is the psalms in a prayer yeah. right I know, totally. The Psalms uh, end in praise. Yeah. The whole structure of the Psalter ends in a pan of praise towards God. And yeah. so does the, the hearts or the souls search for God. Praise is rest. Yeah. We're made for him. And I think this book is kind of a full circle kind of thing to hearkening him back to book one. Yeah. And he finally yeah. finds rest by praising God rightly. It's, it's also worth talking about, too, before I go. I got five minutes. Um, the uh, twice where he uses that very interesting prayer that's com that comes within the context of his struggle. Right. So he's talking about these these temptations that he has and he's reflecting back on his struggle with sex and his desire for continence. Right. So that the, that continence can actually then help him. Uh, in his in his pursuit of truth, because things like like lust and ambition can thwart the uh, attempt to pervert or thwart that. And so twice he gives this very kind of like famous prayer in the context of continence um, that uh, will spark a pretty big controversy a little bit later. Right. Um, oh, so, yeah. Give give what. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Yeah, so on really give it or something like that. So 2940 uh, at the end of that paragraph, he says, anyone who loves something else as well as you. Uh, but does not love it for your sake, uh, love you the less as a result, right? So kind of what we we're saying about pride, he's saying here again, about love, which you already referred to, right? So you can love things, um, you know, it's good to love your spouse, 
Um, but if you love your spouse in place of God, then that's wrong. That's idolatry. But if you love your spouse in God and because of God and for God, then now you're right. You have a rightly ordered love. Uh, and then he says, oh, love, speaking of, of God, you burn forever and are never quenched. Oh, charity, my God, set me on fire. You command continence, give what you command and command what you will, which, of course, sparks the whole Pelagian controversy later when, you know, this British monk named Pelagius finds himself in Europe. Uh, he comes into contact with this prayer from confessions and he's he's upset about it because he thinks that, you know, the second part of the prayer, command what you will. Well, that's fine. God's God. He could command whatever he wants. Um, but give what you command. Uh, he's he's in disagreement with because the idea here is that God, you know, needs to enable me to follow this command to be continent. Um, and uh, what Pelagius who's going to say, no, you don't actually need that, 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 that ability from if God wants to help you with a kind of grace. Go for it. But you can actually follow the command and be continent of your own powers. And Augustine with this and with pride and all that stuff is saying, no, this is God moving the whole way. Like none of this is me. This is God moving me on this direction to draw me to himself through the mediator so that now I can actually really know him with my mind. And, and, and then as such, through the faculties of the whole of the of the soul and then also with the senses of the body. So it's you, we got to talk about Pelagianism, at least for a second. It's <laughs> good. Uh, well, we'll probably get into it a little bit more. I don't know in the next chapters, maybe not. Yeah. Um, I think we should stop here. I think we summarized yeah. the book. I like I the place you ended. Class. 